Our scripture reading today is from Proverbs chapter 4. And I will be reading from the NIV version. So Proverbs chapter 4. Get wisdom at any cost. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me, and he said to me, Take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands, and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, and she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present present you with a glorious crown. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you turn, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Becky, for reading such a long passage. So I wanted to thank Pastor Nick uh, for walking us through the book of Ruth. Um, And it's it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. uh, And so it was... It's always a pleasure to kind of go through that uh, from someone else's perspective. And so, uh, and it actually serves as a wonderful precursor for our new series. We're going through the book of James. 
Uh, Pastor Nick called the series uh, Back to the Basics, and so, uh, you know, we're really just walking through the book of James, which is full of practical wisdom um, and just, yeah, Christian life. And so lots of, lots of good stuff that we're going to get into with that. But the reason why it serves so well as a, a precursor to, or, or the book of Ruth serves as a precursor to this is, you know, Naomi, she experienced loss, right? At the very beginning of the book, she loses everything. And ultimately, she's restored. And that's really, that's sort of the same promise that James is making in the very beginning of our passage today. Um, and so uh, we're going to explore this book together, and we're going to see what God would have us take from it. So uh, let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, this morning and for uh, your gathered body, Lord, that uh, our brothers and, and sisters are here together uh, with one aim, and that is to worship you. And Father, uh, may we worship you with our, our actions and our words and our thoughts. And we pray that this time uh, that your message would uh, serve us and, and fashion us to, uh, and just how to do all those things. And so I uh, just pray that you'd be with me, help me to speak with clarity. Um, Father, be with the, the people here. Open their hearts to what you would have for them. And pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, so this being uh, the first sermon in a new series, it means that we need to introduce it a bit first. And so, uh, you know, first, who wrote this and to whom and why? And the first verse of today's passage answers two of those questions. We're going to be in James chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 through 4. But the first verse says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Okay, so uh, not surprisingly, the book of James is written by James. Uh, you know, the real question, though, is who is James? Who's, and, and there's a lot of different Jameses, and so there's questions as to, well, which one then uh, wrote this? And so uh, there are different theories, but I think, uh, by and large, the, the prevailing thought as that this is actually Jesus' half-brother. Uh, he's half-brother because, you know, the whole virgin birth thing. And so uh, they only share one parent. And so, uh, you know, Joseph, I'm sure, raised both of them, though. But, uh, but James is then the brother of Jesus. They grew up in the same household together. So this is, James is kind of a big deal then, right? I mean, you know. Uh, and imagine growing up with Jesus as your older brother. You know, imagine your older brother always being right it's no wonder why James is talking about trials today, because he's just, he's so well-versed with it. He understands. Uh, but who is James writing to then? It says, to the 12 tribes dispersed, or other translations might just say the diaspora. Um, the diaspora refers to the Jews uh, that were spread out all over the world uh, after their exile from Israel. And so these are the Jews, uh, they, they no longer have a country to call home. Uh, there is no Israel uh, and James likely references this to remind them of their exile, of the sin that got them kicked out, but also then of the faithfulness of God in bringing them uh, back once, and then they get exiled again. But he also promises then to bring that second group back into Israel uh, after the second exile. But they're still in exile at this point, right? And they're, they're still out of the promised land. And so uh, there's probably some questions in the minds of the Jews uh, of, you know, just well, when is God going to do this? And, you know, if, if we're still not restored, does that mean that we're uh, in sin? Are we, you know, are we doing something that is preventing God from uh, bringing us back in? Uh, you know, and then there's also the reality that them not being in their home, 
naturally means that they're outsiders uh, in the place that they were and that they, they didn't really belong. Uh, and so persecution, animosity, okay, they're not uncommon towards the Jews in this time. Uh, and the Jews, they're likely being reminded of God's promises to them uh, to restore them when James refers to them as the diaspora. Okay? It's sort of this identity uh, that has this theological meaning behind it. So with that term, then, we get a glimpse of why James may be writing. Uh, he more directly spells it out in the next few verses. So verses 2 and 3, he says, Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, this is a famous verse, right? Uh, no matter how many times you read it, I think it still startles you as you read it. There's some problematic words in there, right? Like, I mean, the first one being joy, right? Consider it pure joy when you go through difficult times? That's, that doesn't make any sense, right? The uh, second word that I think gives us trouble is the testing, right? There, there's sort of an implication that our hardships are instituted by God. And so we'll talk about those later on. But trials, they're a difficult subject because they can be so awful to go through. And there's so much weight attached to them. And as we go through them or we try and process them as Christians... We explore the relationship between the trial and our faith and our God. Things they can start to get pretty messy really quick, right? And so today we're going to talk about persecution and trials and why they happen and what we're supposed to do with them. Uh, so let's begin first with talking about what kinds of things James has in mind when he refers to trials. So he, he mentions various trials or trials of many kinds in other translations. Okay, he's not just focused on the things we tend to think of as trials, uh, you know, the, the really big things that happen in life. He's, he's really talking about everyday stuff that comes up that we have to get through. Uh, and certainly the major things that we uh, encounter or experience, I mean, these are included in James's thinking. Uh, but really, uh, just to be clear, you know, he's talking just as much about the parents dealing with the kids who have lost their shoes for the 20th time today, right, uh, as he is with the terminal diagnosis that somebody got. Okay, he, he's saying that both of these are trials and they both require something. And so, and he does that not because he's saying those things are of equal weight, but in the fact that they both create construction uh, zones in our souls. Uh, and so he's talking about big and smaller forms of trials. But that kind of leads to the next question then, which is why are there trials in the first place? You know, why is there suffering? And so I want to kind of walk us through what I think are three of uh, the main ways in which we see suffering come about. And so there's one, suffering from our sin, okay, my personal sin, your personal sin. And then there's suffering from other people's sins, okay, the things that people do to you. Uh, and then there's suffering that is ordained by God. And we'll talk about that first one because it's, it's actually pretty important. Uh, there are times when we as Christians believe that we are suffering in ways that we bear no responsibility for. Okay. There's this sense of false persecution that can crop up. And so I was trying to think of a good example, and the only examples I could really think of are, are debatable, and so I, I decided to make one up instead. So imagine this. Okay. Imagine you, a Christian. Okay. You hear about a book club for atheists. Okay. They're, they're going to be gathering. They're going to be discussing books um, and just sharing in their um, uh, atheist brotherhood. I don't know what you'd call it. You know, but they're, they're going to share uh, and discuss this book together, right? And so you have this noble intention of wanting to go and sort of witness to them. So you're planning on going to this, this book club, okay? 
Only when you go and they're discussing the book, you hijack the conversation and you start theological arguments and perhaps you insult their mothers or something. I don't know. It gets crazy in there, you know. And so they force you out and they ban you from ever coming again, okay? Now, some Christians, they find themselves in these sorts of situations and they feel like they're being persecuted for their faith, when in reality, they're really just being a jerk and the people are treating them like you treat jerks. And so they're, they're getting rid of them, right? And so when you find yourself in bad relationships with the people around you, it could be because of your faith, but it could also be because of the way that you're treating them. And so I think as Christians, we need to stop and ask ourselves, like, is this really because of my faith or am I doing something wrong to this person? Are they, are they you know, uh, put off by the sins that I'm committing against them? You know, like, of course, we should speak the truth, but Scripture says to also do so in love. And so you need to stop and ask yourself, have I, have I actually done this, these things in love? You know, we, we tend to forget half of that equation, right, and just go with the other. But the larger point here is that as Christians, any hardship is occasion to sort of step back and take stock of where we're at with God, right? Like, we shouldn't just assume that all hardships that come our way are because of, uh, you know, external forces that we, you know, we just had no part in. Um, I think I've shared this before previously, but it's a funny story anyway, so I'll share it again. But uh, it reminds me of this person that I know. He told me that in, in their early years, they ended up dating like three or four of the girls that, that he worked with. And so, uh, and it wasn't long before he accidentally created a miserable work environment, okay? Because he would date Julie one week, and then the next week he'd be dating Susie, and Julie and Susie would be working on the same night with him. And it was just unbearable, he said. And so, uh, you know, it was his actions that sort of led to this whole thing, right? Uh, you, you live and learn from these things. But, but let's say that's not your situation, okay? You, you've sort of, uh, you've taken inventory. Your conscience is clear. You really don't feel like you've done anything wrong, okay? Uh, then you can shift into a different mode. And that's that some suffering happens as a result of the sins of others. Okay, that's our second thing there. That that can be persecution or it can just be some injustice that's committed against you. Okay, we're all very familiar with that, unfortunately. And, you know, this is somebody stabbing you in the back and then using that to keep you down. Uh, it's when you find out some hidden sin of a loved one that, you know, as it comes out now, you've got to deal with the consequences of that. Okay, we've heard horror stories throughout history of our brothers and sisters uh, laying down their lives, some enduring awful torture for their faith. We know that most of the apostles were killed for their faith. James, our, our author today, uh, he was also martyred. It's believed that he was thrown from the top of a temple and then stoned and beaten uh, with clubs uh, until he died. Okay? I mean, he was, he was likely teaching then, right? I mean, he's, he's serving the Lord actively, and he's dead because of that. Uh, you know, this is not... I would not say that James died because of something that he did, right? This is uh, the sins of others uh, committing, committed against him. And so sometimes horrible things happen because sin has so permeated the earth. And so we should understand that suffering exists because sin exists. But there's another part to that, and I'm saying it is our third type of trial, but really it's a foundational underlying truth beneath all forms of suffering. And that's the idea that God does, in fact, ordain our trials. And we're going to take a minute to unpack that because, I, I, you know, I think it's one of the hardest concepts for Christians to grasp. Uh, and so let me start by saying 
this, and this, like I said, a, a difficult subject, but we do not believe that God is evil or that evil comes from God, but the book of Job gives us an odd, a very surprising look at God and his management of the world. Okay, if you're, if you're unfamiliar, okay, in the book, Satan actually approaches God, and he says that God's servant Job only praises him because his life is so great. You know, Job was a very wealthy man. Okay, everything that he could have had, he had. And so uh, God says that that isn't true. And Satan says, let's bet then. Okay? And uh, he says, let me wreak havoc on him, and we'll see if he still praises you in the end. Okay, once everything's been taken from him, let's just see how faithful your servant is. And God, uh, again, this startles us, but God says, okay. Have at him. And boy, does he. Job loses everything. He loses all of his children, his wealth, his house. He gets sick and develops painful boils all over his body. His wife, after seeing all that had happened to him, tells him to curse God and die. She saw no hope for this man. We've all had bad days, dark days. I can't imagine what Job was feeling, even though we have it written out for us. It's just... Even with the words, it's unfathomable. And God allowed that, as Scripture so plainly states. Now, I want to pause because I understand the weight of what I've just said. Okay? There are a lot of questions that come up with that. You know? And uh, obviously the why, but also the how. You know, how, how does my free will work then with the sovereignty of God? Our focus today is on the why, but for the how, as in how does it work, that I have free will and that God is sovereign over everything. Okay, I'll quickly say just this. Okay, Scripture teaches us two things. That we have free will and agency, that we are morally responsible for our choices, uh, but also that nothing happens without God at least giving the okay. okay. Well, how does that work? We don't know. Okay, We just don't know. Uh, but there are other examples of this in the world, actually, and they're called antinomies. Uh, an antinomy is when you have two things that must be true, and yet, uh, by all of the best of our logic, they are contradictory. Okay? Uh, so the, the only example that I can really think of, uh, this is out of my area, so please, you know, for you smarty pants out there, okay, you can correct me after the service, that's fine. Uh, but light, okay, light is a very fascinating thing for scientists because uh, it's made up of electrons. It's a form of matter. Uh, and yet it doesn't always act like matter. I'm going to see if Gary is like nodding his head yes or no during this. But, uh, and so there's actually there's something called the double slit experiment. Uh, experiment okay? So uh, basically, if you take a flashlight okay, and you're, you've got like a piece of metal or something, uh, you can picture it up against this wall. Okay, it's got one slit in there. If you turn on a flashlight and the light goes through it, uh, it will just, you'll have a straight line of the light behind the thing, right? But what's interesting, okay, because that's how matter is supposed to work, at least so I'm told. Uh, what is interesting, though, is if you put a second slit in that, what, what would you say would happen? You'd expect two straight lines then, right, behind it. But that's not what happens. It actually then, light behaves like a wave. It actually, uh, you've created an interference pattern. So now, light is acting like a wave. And so all of a sudden, instead of having two straight lines behind the slits, you actually have a bunch of lines across the thing. Okay? It does not make sense, at least that's my understanding, okay? because uh, matter is only supposed to act in this way. Nothing else does this, uh, again, so I understand. 
So how? You know, it doesn't make sense. And it's my understanding that even uh, the experts are baffled by this because it contradicts pretty basic principles uh, of science. And so we don't know everything, uh, theologically, uh, certainly not scientifically. Uh, and that's okay. We don't have to have God figured out. In fact, we'd be pretty vain if we think we could, right? If we could reason our way to him. Uh, it's rare, but contradictory does not mean wrong. It just means that we have limited understanding of how things work. Uh, now, I'm going to have to leave that because that's not really the focus of our sermon. But, uh, you know, if you have questions about that, though, please, you know, feel free to reach out to me or Pastor Nick or perhaps a very brave elder uh, in the church. Uh, unless you have questions about light, in which case, don't ask me. Okay? Just, I don't know, talk to Gary or something. They, he knows more than me. So, uh, but like I said, my, my point is just that we don't know everything, and that th- there are clearly ways that things work that we just don't understand. And that can be hard to accept, because especially uh, when you attach the uh, emotional weight of something personal. We're trying to figure out, okay, what, what is going on here? Uh, I understand that, uh, and yet we don't know. We just have to sort of live in that. But I will say this. I think the why of why God acts in this way helps us to see this not as a bad thing, but actually a good thing. And so, as the third verse in today's passage says, God allows these trials because they produce endurance. What does James mean by that? Well, we know what endurance is, right, for sports, okay? You work out, you train, you, like, I mean, if you're doing a marathon, you don't just wake up that morning and say, I'm going to go run 26.2 miles today. That's it's bad. Okay? You might kill yourself doing that, literally, right? Uh, and so, you know, life is a marathon in, in its own right. Uh, you know, and so we have to train for that. We have to prepare. Paul has his famous passage on this idea, right? He, he talks about running for the prize. Endurance, though, in this context, it is the ability to last through these trials, these difficult things in life, without abandoning your faith. Okay? It's an endurance within a relationship. Our faith is a relationship, not just a belief and a set of facts. Okay? When you become a Christian, right, the goal in life is to become more like Christ. And how do we do that? We imitate him, right? It's, he's our example for everything. Uh, we look to him and we say, all right, so this is how I need to do it. Uh, we look to him to uh, see how we should love our neighbor, on uh, dying to ourselves, and how to worship God. We seek to do all the things that Jesus did. But for whatever reason, I think I know the answer, but, but for whatever reason, all of a sudden, we pause when we see Jesus suffer for us. And all of all of the other things we look at, and we're like, man, you know, how do I do that for Christ? But then when we get to this idea of suffering. We see Jesus dying for us, and we're like, wow, that's amazing that Jesus did that for me and has absolutely no expectations of me doing that for him. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense, right? <clears throat> like, of course, you can't die for the sins of others, and you may never even get the opportunity to sacrifice your life uh, for another person, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Uh, but you will lay down your life for Jesus if you're a Christian. Jesus says to take up your cross and to follow him, uh, right? And so what does that mean if not that we're going to sacrifice ourselves and experience some pain on that road as we follow him, okay? Uh, if you want to follow Jesus, it means that you're going to follow him into hard times as well. Uh, I mean, it's what he did for us. But here's the thing, and here's the endurance part of this. Okay, the way you go down that road 
without turning aside is by continuing to follow Jesus, to drink of his mercy and grace as you encounter difficulties, right? Like you gain a certain trust with Christ as you survive one experience after another. When you've got money problems, but three years later, you still have a roof over your head, or maybe you've lost someone dear to you, but you still feel the warmth of God's love in your life, and you see some growth in yourself and this deepening of your relationship with Christ. That's what I'm talking about. When you suffer in the path of obedience, uh, not because of your own sin, you are suffering in a way in which you grow a kinship with the Savior. You're developing a bond through increased fellowship with Christ. Your faith connects you to him, and you become a part of the family of God. You now share in the inheritance promised to Jesus the Son because you too are now a son or a daughter of Christ. And so you get eternal life. You get access to the Father, just like Jesus. But you're also going to get his suffering. As Roman 8 says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We've all gone through stuff. And you know who was there with you when you went through it. You know who the friends were that called to check in on you. The people that showed up. And for sure, if people were directly involved, uh, you remember that vividly. Even if you don't talk to them anymore. Uh, maybe you've grown apart or whatever. You know what I'm talking about when I say that whenever you see them, you're reminded of that event uh, or that time period of your life when they were there for you. I still remember the guy uh, that physically grabbed the client who pulled a knife uh, from the ministry's kitchen that we were working at and was threatening to kill us. Okay, he, he grabs this guy, uh, and, you know, I, I take the knife away, and, and he, he's a big guy, so he you know, throws him to the ground and ends up sitting on him while we wait for the police to get there. Okay, it was a uh, very unexpected moment in our ministry there. Uh, I've seen this guy, I think, one, one time since. Uh, but I remember that, right? I remember him doing that. I remember going through that experience together. And so anytime I see him on Facebook, I, just that memory comes to mind, right? You guys have experienced the same thing, okay? It's a shared experience. Uh, you're sort of bonded to that person forever. And that's how it is with Jesus. You develop this bond for life as you experience the various things, including the good, by the way. It's good that we remember uh, the blessings that God has given us, the ways in which he's um, worked good in our lives, because it gives us proof when we're in the bad that God is good, that he does bless his children, even in the storms. So when you have a difficult child or a chronic illness, when money is tight or when the unimaginable happens, you get to know Jesus in a way that just wasn't possible before. And that's what James means when he finishes our passage today. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. These experiences, they build us up. They, they lend perspective on whatever else is coming our way in life. And I think next week we're going to talk about doubt. Uh, but I think that's what James is setting up here. Uh, that it gets harder to doubt the more you go through these sorts of things. You have more of a basis uh, for trust. And uh, you, you trust the faithfulness of Christ to get you through whatever it is that you're going through. I've been around for 
uh, 32 years now, and I, I think back sometimes uh, just on my life and, and all the things that God has brought me through. I mean, he, he brought me out of what would have been an awful home situation uh, with my birth mom. He, he led me through, I was adopted by my adopted mom, and uh, you know, uh, surviving adolescence in a place where I never really felt like I belonged. There's, he got me through college and through 10 years of, of what has been a wonderful marriage. Uh, it's not necessarily... <laughs> just going to have to talk about that one at home. Uh, but, you know, a, a marriage, as good as it is, right, there, there are difficulties that come with that. Uh, and now with kids, right, it's the same thing. You know, I love my kids, but there's challenges with that. Uh, I lost my nephew a few years ago, and, and more recently, the, the complex emotions that come uh, from losing my birth mom without having had the chance to meet her. You know, you go through these things, and you gain a trust with Christ. Some of the things I mentioned are of the more mundane nature of my life, right? I mean, college is a normal experience. People go through that all the time. Uh, but it's still a, a trial in many ways. You still have to go through it. Uh, maybe it's not as big as the other things in my life, but it's still, I mean, I look back on the, those days, and uh, that shaped me uh, maybe more than any other time period in my life. But each of those things, right, it's given me a confidence in Christ that has given me the stamina to endure the next thing that comes up. I wouldn't say I lack nothing today or that I have been made complete, but I do feel like my experiences in life have developed a pretty good track record with God. He hasn't failed me yet. And part of the privilege of being uh, in the role that I'm in here in the church is that I get to hear from many of you the ways that God hasn't failed you either. So we suffer in part to become more like Christ and because it builds an endurance in life. But there's another reason that James doesn't hit on as much here, but Peter does in his letters, and I, I think it's worth mentioning. And that is this concept that uh, suffering is a testimony to the other people around us. It's a testimony to Christ and his eternal goodness. As we seek to follow Christ, our, our endurance shines bright. It's a mysterious foreign endurance to the world. It is a beautiful endurance. And so let's talk about that, because uh, I've talked about this with, with a few people now, but I'm really convinced that the world will not understand Christ until they see the beauty of Christ. And so we as Christians, we need to make sure that we're doing our part in, in making sure that we're not making Jesus look ugly, because of course he is beautiful. But the world has to see Jesus as beautiful. And so there is beauty in our suffering. Okay, there is a beauty that can only be achieved in our suffering. In our darkest moments is when the beauty of Christ shines brightest. The world cannot understand this. Like, how could they? Right? How could the world possibly understand this? There's just no way because unless you've experienced this, it doesn't make sense. You see someone suffer, you're like, yeah, that's a bad thing. But for Christians, we know, okay, uh, some, some of these people, okay, that uh, if they don't know Jesus, they may look at you. And they, they know that you're a Christian. They know that you're, you're praising God. And they'll see these terrible things happen to you. And they'll say, like Job's wife, that you should curse God and die. Because in their eyes, God has obviously given you nothing. 
They won't understand it, but they will know it. When in these trials, when you are spent, because perhaps when everything has been taken away from you and you feel your world falling apart around you, that they will know this to be beautiful when you say in those circumstances, I have everything I will ever need. So Christian, your suffering is in direct proportion to the glory of God. The greater your suffering, the greater God's name is made in the eyes of the world, and the greater your reward is in heaven. James talks about that later uh, in verse 12, I think. It's when the stakes are highest, okay, that you prove that you're all in, that Jesus really is your everything. People will be drawn to that mysterious bond that you have with that which cannot be seen. 2 Corinthians 2.14 describes our suffering in a really uh, beautiful, poetic way. Uh, It says that our suffering is death to us, but life to others. I've got a long but good quote from Scottish pastor William Still that explains that idea. That is the profoundest and most practical principle in the Bible, that every time we go to minister, there must be a new death. Deaths oft, I die daily, said Paul. It is the glorious agony of those who are used of God amidst the oppositions of the world, the church, and certainly the devil, that we are ever dying men and women. He goes on. You can see what a death this is to die to those who think you are nothing if not popular. If we are not prepared to suffer, and suffering is not fun, nor is it meant to be fun, we shall not reign. The two belong together. As Peter says over and over again in his first epistle. And here's here's the quote that I really want you to take. Hurt in fruit, death in life, sorrow and joy. They belong together as manure belongs to a fruitful garden. So I'll say that again. Hurt and hurt and fruit, death in life, sorrow and joy. They belong together as manure belongs to a fruitful garden. I don't know where you're at today. I know having talked with some of you that some of you are just hanging on. And that's okay. You're building up the endurance now for maybe what lies ahead. Some of you may feel like your faith is so weak. And the good news for you is that the amount of your faith doesn't impact Jesus' ability to carry you through, right? Like when Jesus says that if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, it's because Jesus is the one that's able to do the thing. You just, any amount of faith that you have, Jesus is able. And so if you want to picture with me, I was trying to think of an analogy for this. But if you want to picture with me Jesus being like a boat that you're really nervous about. Okay, maybe you're like, you know, this boat doesn't look big enough for me. The water looks cold and deep, and I'm pretty sure I just saw a shark over there, right? You go on and on. You're, you're very nervous about this boat, but you step in. You, you get in the boat. And the boat starts moving, and, and you've got all sorts of concerns and doubts. And, and while you doubt, the boat just keeps going. It's just motoring on, completely unaffected by your doubts, okay? Um, Jesus can still carry you through, whether you doubt him 
or not, right? Like if you're on this boat, uh, it doesn't matter if you doubt the engine. The engine isn't affected by you, right? It doesn't take a hit to its self-esteem and suddenly starts wondering, well, maybe I can't do this. Okay, the motor is the motor. It's just going to keep going. Uh, and at some point, some will take longer than others, but at some point as you're on this boat ride, you will start to gain a trust for it, right? You're just like, I, I, you know, we haven't sunk yet, so I guess, I guess this is okay. You know, the sharks haven't attacked me yet, so I don't know, maybe, maybe we're okay, right? You'll see that the boat is doing just fine, that everything is fine, and eventually you'll get to a place where you realize that your doubts were unwarranted. But we have to experience these things before we can come to fully trust Jesus with them. And looking at this missionally, again, okay, uh, think about this idea that, that our suffering is a testimony to others. Okay, the way you got in the boat, most likely, was you saw someone else riding that boat and saw that everything worked out, right? When you became a Christian, okay, you likely didn't get there yourself, right? You saw other Christians. You saw something that they had. And so uh, some of you may feel added pressure by this thought, right? That people are watching you, and man, if they don't come to faith, it's because I wasn't faithful enough. And uh, certainly there's, um, we have a responsibility to be faithful to Christ. But let me remind you about this, okay? Uh, if you get across the water, they're not looking at you. They're looking at the boat because they realize that it's the boat that got them across, that got you across, right? It's not, you did nothing in that. You just got in the boat, Right? Uh, and so you might be fearful because you feel like you haven't handled yourself all that well as you go through these trials, that there have been failures in your trials. But again, you know what? All they see is a person needlessly freaking out because they'll see that the boat got safely across. I don't know why they're spazzing out the whole time. The boat seemed just fine, you know? And so they themselves will be in the water, right? <clears throat> and they're looking for a way out, and when they see you in that boat, they see that the boat works perfectly, they will say to themselves, I, I, you know, I just need that boat. That's what I need to get out of this situation. So as we close, we return to that difficult command that I skipped over in verse 2. Consider it pure joy when you suffer. How do you take joy in being a stay-at-home mom or dad when the tasks never end? And every day is so draining, and there's no end in sight to this. How do you get through that? How do you take the joy, or how do you take joy in the job with a difficult boss or coworkers? How do you take joy in getting older, your body slowly breaking down? And how do you take joy when what is most dear to you is taken away? It's okay to mourn those things or to feel the strife that they cause, but take joy. We can celebrate what God is doing, or if you can't see what he's doing, what he has promised to do. I had to literally just read Proverbs 4 today because wisdom is knowledge applied, and wisdom shines brightest and truest when applied to our suffering. As you obey God in your toughest days, you will experience life from the God of life. So that is what you rejoice in, the fact that you serve a God who raises the dead, who takes broken things and makes them new again, who melts the hearts of stone and makes them new again, makes them a new creation. You rejoice in your bond with Christ, a brother you've gone to battle with and won. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world until they see it practically lived out by the people of God. 
until when they tell you to curse God and die, and you lift your hands in praise, and you rejoice in all that he has done, it won't make sense to them. But will they see the beauty in it? You gain credibility with the world. Jesus is made more real to them when they see you endure these trials. Without it, they think you only praise God because your life is perfect. As John Piper is known for saying, as we discussed in Sunday school this morning, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, in the midst of loss. Jesus extends his mercy to us, though. He invites us. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence uh, in all of our lives both in the, the good times. We thank you for the blessings that you give us. But Lord, we also thank you for your presence in the dark times. Lord, when we, don't, uh, when we don't feel like you are there, we thank you that you are there anyways. We thank you for your ability that even when we've lost everything, that you are powerful enough, you are able to turn all things for our good. And you promised to do so in Romans 8. And so, Father, as we go through this life, I pray for endurance. Father, that, uh, that these trials, that we would not grow bitter as a result of them, but instead we, we turn to you and we rely on you for the strength and the wisdom and the endurance. We pray for the Holy Spirit to empower us to boldly live out our lives for you even as our world crumbles around us. And Father, I pray for clarity for the people here. Lord, uh, we are all in different trials right now. We're all being shaped uh, and trained for something. And Father, I pray that you give clarity to the people uh, that are just there feeling it the most, that they don't know when their current trial is going to end, that they don't know what you're trying to do in them or what you're trying to work out of that situation. We just pray that you give them a glimpse, a glimpse of the glory that you've promised to work. So, Father, we, we thank you for all of these things. Thank you for your son uh, who has given everything for us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.